Man, good morning again. Can you fix that, Marsha, please, that uh, to 55? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're headed. Let me get open and set up. Uh, a couple things. Those text to check in, text to give things, uh, were things that we put in place to try out, especially in the absence of a, an app that was working well. Those will disappear soon. So those are all built in a new app. Just pick up on that, please, please, please uh, download the new app. So I did text the elders this morning. I did ask for prayer. The, the message this morning is, is a heavy message, right? It's a good message, and it's a gospel message. It's a biblical message. We know all those things, but sometimes some topics are harder than others. And this one is especially hard in any setting, but it's uniquely hard in our setting today because of where we are as a church. And so let me unpack that just for a minute. If I were going to take 1 Corinthians, which Paul writes to the church in Corinth, addressing the church, which we defined as the gathered people or body, right? That's us. This is the church. Church isn't me as pastor or the elders. The church is us, especially and uniquely those of us who are formerly members of the church, right? And there's about, there's just under 50 members. There's about 30-something people pursuing membership right now. And then there's, well, we were just friends and guests and whatever, wherever you are on the spectrum, okay? Wherever you fit on that relational spectrum. But as it addresses the church, it's addressing the collective, gathered, assembled people who formerly belong to it. And that's important. And so as we have begun to lean into membership on the other side of COVID ending, lean into what it means to belong here, right? then as we do that, we also are looking at the responsibilities of those who are members. And that's new for us, having been primarily elder-led from the foundation of generations seven and a half, a little over seven and a half years ago, to more elder-led congregational. No, in other words, elder-led and kind of directed and, and, and overseen, but more led by the members than we've ever done. So if you're a member, that means you have a voice and, you, have, uh, and you, you help disciple one another. You help guide and direct one another. And because that's newer, this topic today that we'll be in is just challenging. And so if I were going to address you with the 10 issues that Paul brings to the church in Corinth, I would put this issue later in the 10 because I would do some of the other issues to help us build into it. But Paul has a relationship with this church already. He began the church. You can read about that. He, he preached the gospel, saw the first people come to faith in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And then he keeps this relationship as he goes to Ephesus, which is across a, a, a small sea. He keeps this relationship by primarily writing letters. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians we have in the Bible are not the first letters and second letters he wrote to them. It's at least the second and fourth letter. And we'll see that in the text today, so just keep that in mind. The other two, by the sovereignty of God, evidently don't need to be in the Bible. These two do. And they tell of a unique circumstance in the church in Corinth, where the church is called to remove a member of their church. And so that's what we'll look at today, but 
The book overall is about these 10 issues inside the local church, and we keep reminding ourselves that church means the gathered, assembled people. It's a local church. We're not just talking about all Christians everywhere throughout space and time, but the local church, specific to that. And when Paul opens this letter, which we saw last week, to this church, and this applies to, he even says, and to all churches, right? So it applies to all churches in that day and all churches today. And we use this as a main idea last week. We'll put it back on the screen. Unity and purity. Every local church is called to live in unity and purity for, first of all, the growth and maturity of the church, and second of all, as a witness for Christ to the non-believing world, to those outside of Christ, right? Same main idea today. Last week was more on unity. Today we'll deal more with purity. And that could be the main idea of the entire book, actually. But today we'll lean into the purity side of a church. So I want to look at, before we get into the text, I want to look at Jesus teaching the disciples about the church. So how did Jesus set this thing up? Because what we're going to see today is how Jesus taught about the church, or what the church is, and what the church should do, and how the church should function, is what Paul is living out with this church in Corinth. Make sense? Jesus' teachings, Paul's teaching, same thing. So let's see it in both. So the first one is in Matthew 16. So it says, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ. Now here's what happened. Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am? They have some answers. And then he looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Peter's the first one that answers. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, on this rock, meaning the confession of faith, his true profession of who Jesus is, okay? On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a, there's a strong statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the gathered people of God. Okay. And then he says, I will give you, this is a you plural to the disciples who become the apostles, right? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here's what he says. Upon a confession of, true confession of faith, who is truly in Christ, right, is the basis of the local church. So if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus today, you're a guest, we're glad you're here, maybe you've been attending for a season, you're trying to figure this thing out, but in order to formally belong to the local church, you must be a follower of Jesus, right? That that's, makes sense, right? Right? You're in a motorcycle club, in order to be a part of that club, you must ride. Fair? Same idea, right? It's just the, the main qualifier, right? You must be a follower of Jesus. And then he says, upon this rock, this confession of faith, that's what I'll build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There is a unique promise on the local church that in some way, by the Spirit, remember we talked about, we kind of finished with last week, that the church, the, t- the gathered people, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is where God's presence resides uniquely when we gather, yes, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, you have the Holy Spirit inside you, yes. Uniquely when we gather, there's something special. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail against that. And then he commissions them, he gives them the keys of the kingdom, is what Jesus calls it. He gives to the apostles the authority to define what is that clear confession of faith. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Like, what you define will be true. So he gives the apostles, this is, this is important, 
unique authority to qualify what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, to be fair, what it means to be a church. So what we're reading is what the apostles wrote down about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus to be a part of a local church, right? They were given the authority, the authority to do that, just them. That doesn't exist today. Lead pastors do not have the authority to define beyond what Scripture says what a church is or what a Christian is. Okay? Step one. All right. So, the apostles in Scripture define credible profession of faith, and belonging to a local church grants spiritual protection in some way to its members. That's important for what we'll read today. Second verse, and I'm going to split this one in half because it's long. Matthew 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and, now this is brothers and sisters. You women are not off the hook, for the record. All right. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me pause. If someone offends you, Jesus commands, and this, is, and this is particular to the church, but it applies beyond that, okay? Someone does something that offends you, and you're commanded by Jesus to go and talk to them. Now, 99.5% of you, that's a rough estimate, do not like confrontation. And the other half percent of you probably love confrontation. That's not good either, right? All right. So we're all jacked up. That's the deal. Okay. You are to go to them and talk to them. Not go to your buddy. Not go to a group. Not go to this. Not go to that. Not go to someone who can't fix it and talk to them. Go to the person one-on-one to try and resolve this. Let me also give you just a pro tip from 20 years of pastoral ministry. Almost always it's a misunderstanding that can be cleared up. Almost always. And in the other cases, you can still work through it, okay? So if he listens to you or she listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not, take one or two others along with you. Now, this is about the local church. You don't go grab random people and go have this conversation. You have to have somebody who can work on this, and this is qualified by Jesus in just a minute as the local church, okay? Take one or two others and go to them. Okay, let me stop again. If you have an issue with me, with someone else here, with whatever, with a decision that's been made, it is the command of Jesus to go and have that conversation. Now, if you go to someone else and talk about it, that's gossip, okay? Now, there's an exception. I'll give you an exception. If I need to have a conversation with you, but I'm trying to think through how do I have that conversation, and I, I go to John Evenhouse, who is one of our faithful elders and a good friend of mine. I'm like, hey, I've got this issue. How do I approach it? But my outcome, whatever we come up with, then is to be lived out by me going to them. Okay, that makes sense, right? It's not gossip if I'm trying to solve for how to do this well. But if I have this conversation, don't go over here, gossip. Fair? Okay. So you're in sin if you don't have the conversation. You're in sin if you gossip. Whew, we got there quick, didn't we? Okay. Blame Jesus, not Jeff. All right. So take somebody else along with you. The, every charge may be, now that word charge is important, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he or she refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? So everybody, past, present, and future? The church, like everybody who believes in Jesus? No. The local church. 
You can't tell it to everybody else. You take it to your local church, right? So imagining Chris and I, which we don't, we get along famously, have an issue. Clearly in this story, I'm right. And I go to him, he doesn't listen, but then I get John and we both go to him together, and that doesn't work. Then we go to the church because we're members of the same church. And we chop it up with the church, hoping to solve the issue, right? We disagree and we just can't get it. So we take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm just going so, to translate that for you. Treat him as a non-believer. Gentiles, tax collectors. Gentiles outside the people of God, tax collectors sinful. Okay? Sorry if you work for the IRS. Treat them like a non-believer. They can't be a member of the church if they're not believers. And if they are unwilling to listen to the one-on-one, the two or three-on-one, and the collective church. And they are unwilling to repent. Now, that assumes that I agree with who, and then the others agree, and that the church agrees that the person is wrong. Treat them like a non-believer. That's what it's saying. Gentile tax collector. So you must talk to someone. You can't gossip. I mean, you can. It's sin, right? And then go to them. If that doesn't work, take somebody else. Go to them. If that doesn't work, bring it to the church. Right? Assuming, again, members of the church. And then if the church decides and that person is still unwilling, then, then they can't be a professing member of the church because we're now unclear, are they actually a follower of Jesus? You with me? Like if, because members of Christ, people who follow Jesus, live in repentance. We use that language all the time. And when the collective gathers and says, listen, we've heard you, we've heard him, I'll flip it because you're just a good guy. And Jeff, you're not listening. Then I'm wrong, likely. And if I'm unwilling to be wrong, unwilling to be repentant, unwilling to learn from what Jesus has commissioned as the church, then I need to be treated as not a part of the church, meaning I can still come. In fact, we want that. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to be in a place where they can hear the gospel but they can't be a member and they can't participate in communion. We, we have to treat them as if they're not a follower of Jesus. Now, that's not a declaration that if they die, they're going to hell. It's, that's God's decision. How they're acting is how we proceed. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Next slide. This is the second part of this passage. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Sound familiar? The church has ecclesial local authority. That when you say they're a member of this local body, what you say here, the collective, is true. That God honors that. Right? That the local church actually has a level of authority. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree about anything on earth, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, it's not two or three random people. We've never left a conversation about the local church. We just had two slides. You with me? Where you agree, it doesn't have to be a big church at this point, it could be a small church. Where you agree, God says, I'm with you, right? For where two or three are gathered in my name, notice the gathered component to the local church. You are not the local church when you're at work. You're a part of the local church. We gather, assemble, 
church, the word in Greek, ekklesia, means gathering. As formerly part of a church, that's what it means, right? So there I am among them. So you've heard Jesus now say, listen, the apostles or the writers of the New Testament, they have authority to define what is truly a follower of Jesus and what is not, and what is truly a church, what it looks like to be a church. And then Jesus says, here's how you're supposed to function as a church. When you have an issue, go talk to somebody. Don't gossip, don't ignore it, don't let it fester. That's on you, right? Go see them, and if that doesn't work, then engage at levels the church. Maybe it's your community group. Maybe it's your women's study. Maybe it's whatever. If that doesn't work, then you take it to the membership of the church for it to be decided, for it to be worked on. The goal of all of this is not rules. The goal is, is, is restoration of people, relationships, and again, now back to 1 Corinthians 5, unity and purity. That we would be unified, not gossiping about each other, harboring resentment about each other, and purity, where there is sin, that we give opportunity for a person to learn about sin, repent of sin, change their lives for the good of the church and the individual. All right? So it's in that context that Paul is going to speak about this today. Now, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. I'm not. Marcia is. View of the church authority. Today, we must challenge our current view of local church authority, comparing it to Scripture. Issues like who has authority, elders, members, a person, a single person, a, a pope, whatever, right? What does it mean to be members of a church, belong formally to a church? What if a person goes astray? So this is super foreign to most of us because culture has so watered down what it looks like to be a local church. And so if somebody were to confront somebody else about something, the likelihood of them walking it out is so low because they just go to the church down the street. Who won't ask them? Hey, so how'd you, where'd you come from? Right? Or won't require something of them. You with me? So Jesus sets it up like this. Jesus commissions the local church. Jesus gives us a way to live with one another in unity and purity. Paul now enters in, and he's in a conversation with a church in Corinth. This is not his first time writing them a letter about this. This is at least his second time. He's going to speak to a specific issue. He's already dealt with the specific issue. He's writing about it again. So we're in this place, not on the front end of it. So within that context, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. That's the longest introduction I have done in years, just for the record. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, family integrated service, I'm going to try and navigate this without using all the words I could use, right? So here's where we are. Here's what God created. He created physical intimacy between four and in a certain setting. One man, one woman, consensually inside the boundaries of marriage for a lifetime. Anything outside of that is sin. Anything before marriage, outside of marriage, extramarital, not one man, one woman, right? Not consensual. Even as Jesus takes it further in Matthew 5, even in your brain. So those websites, 
those things, those movies, there are no shades of what's right or wrong here. That was supposed to be a joke. So anyhow, um, it wasn't funny, but it was a joke. So that's lust. That's wrong desire. There are places where you can communicate differently. That's sin. Not your spouse, right? Anything outside of that. We good? Does that make sense? Family friendly? Okay, good. So this guy is living with, most likely, because the term, the way the term has, someone who used to be married to his dad. Stepmom is what we're thinking. A little creepy. Here's what Paul says. You're tolerating something that culture doesn't even tolerate. Corinth, as I've compared to last week, is a lot like Long Beach or Frisco. Those are the two things historically that modern theologians have compared Corinth to. That should tell you something, right? This is like saying, hey, listen, in your church, you tolerate sin in this particular area that Long Beach wouldn't tolerate. Yeah, that's what it's saying, right? They have parades around this issue. They have things to celebrate. There's a lot of choice. There's a lot of business around these things that are outside of what God allows around sin, right? Okay, try it again. It is actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for this man has his father's wife. So four things about this man. He is known by the church and by Paul. Not the first conversation, okay? He is considered a member by the church in Corinth. Formally, he is associated, connected to, belongs to this local church. His, he's not a stranger, he's not a guest, okay? He belongs, quote, unquote. His sin is well known by all. Not a secret, not just found out, well known. Paul has already talked to them about this man, all right? That's the setting for the conversation. Verse two, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So we'll, we'll deal with the arrogant comment in a minute when verse six comes up. For now, I wanna stay with this man. So what does Paul say needs to be done with this unrepentant man? His answer, or the answer is, let him who has done this be removed from you. We go to kicked out of the church, okay? We go to he can't attend. It's not what Paul's saying. Remove from belonging to, formally belonging to the church, okay? Now, Paul will expand on this in just a few verses, right? Remember what Jesus said. That's what's most important here. I think we have it. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this is a perpetual problem of a sin that is life-defining, this man is choosing to do, even upon being confronted by Paul and perceivably by others, people in the local church. For sure, Paul, when he was in Corinth, dealt with this issue. So let him who has done this be removed from you. Right? Re being removed from church membership looks like what's spelled out by Paul in just a few verses. But I want to pause there give you a note. So church authority today. As we consider our current view of authority, church's authority, ecclesial authority, by the way, remember, remember, don't lose sight of this. When I say church authority, whose authority? The local body, not mine, not the elders, church, right? Right, we're not starting a cult. People, 
okay? The local body, the formal belonging body, the, the, the assembled, gathered people who are formerly family in the church, right? Spiritual family. Not just a leader, not just a selected small group of leaders. The body of the church. That's important to this. When we talk about authority, who has authority is incredibly important, okay? As we consider our current view, back to the note of authority, imagine you're the guilty party. Do you submit to the discipline as unto Christ? Or do you simply leave and find another church? What might be unhealthy, because I'm assuming the answer, about our modern view of this? People, you change a worship leader, people change churches, right? You change the carpet, people change churches, right? There's no riding out somewhere that has confronted you over an issue, a deep issue of sin. How many people do we know have just left, they've vanished? I came back from my surgery in January, and uh, we're just kind of, again, check in, matters. It helps me figure out things, right? Like, hey, we haven't seen so-and-so in a while. And as I reached out to people, there have been people that just vanished, never said a word. And so as I tried to follow up with them, wouldn't say a word. One guy told me, yeah, we can talk about it in a few months. I'm like, few months? What if I'm doing something wrong, right? Like, don't we want to fix that now? What if it's a misunderstanding? That'll be too far away to even figure it out. Our lack of willingness to have a conversation is frightening. We'll tell everybody else about it. But we won't talk to the one person who can actually make a change in the situation. For what reason, I don't know. And so, when we look at this, I want us to set ourselves in this, and we're going to talk about something else next week, not as heavy as this, but still true. And I just want us to compare our modern view of church to how Paul speaks of the church and how authoritative the church can be in the life of the believer, in the life of people, in the life of the community, and how we don't do that, and how we don't believe that, and how we don't treat it that way. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, right? Paul, again, already pronounced judgment on this. He already been there, had the conversation, dealt with it, gave them the conclusion. The reason for chapter 5 here in 1 Corinthians is that the church was unwilling to walk out that decision, right? They gathered, they met, they heard, they listened, they dealt with it, and the outcome was never lived out. The reason for this chapter, right? Verse 4, when you are assembled, did you hear that? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, not you alone, not some of you, when you, plural, we spent time on that last week, are assembled, gathered, when you're together, that's where you're the church. That's what Paul says. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, he's, been, he's like, I'm not going to be there, I'm present with you in spirit only, right? With the power of our Lord Jesus, because when you gather, Jesus says, we're two or three, there I am with you. You're my church. Doesn't have to be big, but when you gather, you're the church, right? When you're a similar name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's exactly what you want to hear when you left for church this morning. Yeah. So let's talk about that. If, there, if you know me, there's one thing you know about me. I'll never shy away from a hard topic, right? Sometimes they're just more fun to talk about, but, you know, but we'll, we'll get them, right? 
what could this possibly mean, right? I want you to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Remember what Jesus says. On that, that true confession of faith, on that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. See, Jesus and Satan have this interesting, at minimum, conversation when Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then Jesus teaches about Satan also. And Satan is a, a, a collective term that typically means evil in those who revolted spiritual, the angels that revolted against God. We use it as a singular person. It really, is, it's more of a collective, right? All who oppose God, right? Could be the one, could be the all, right? It could be any in that, in that setting, right? And so he says, I want you to hand him over. Now, and here's one of the teachings that Jesus gives. He says, listen, Satan is the God of this world, right? The God is the God of everything. But the God of this sinful world, the God, little, little lowercase g, the idol, the king of, the one who leads this broken world, says Satan. You see, but Jesus says that's not true inside the local church. He says upon that true confession of faith that, that the apostles will write down and canonize and qualify for us of what it looks like to truly follow Jesus, right? Not by works, not by merit, but by grace alone, but a transformed life that shows that that, that, that change has been made within you. Right? That's balancing Paul's saved by grace through faith. And James, you say you have faith. I'll show you by my life. That's balancing those together because they have the apostolic authority to define this for us. He says, if you then are unwilling to not do what the church has collectively over time, this doesn't happen in a half an hour. This is over a season of dealing with this. If you're unwilling to repent of this life-defining sin, like who this man is living with and how creepy it is to begin with, then he says, then, then we have questions about you and your faith to begin with. And you don't belong in the church. You, you are outside the church. And if you're outside the local church, not outside the gathering, meaning you're not formally able to be a member because you don't belong to Christ, maybe. Or at least you're not living as if you belong to Christ. And if that's true, you're not under that umbrella of protection that Jesus promised. So he says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh now. That's horrible sounding. But there's a rest of the sentence. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We're not assuming he was never a Christian we're not assuming that if he dies, he goes to hell. We're not saying that. Those are God-sized decisions that we're not qualified to make. But what we are saying is we know what it looks like to live for Jesus and what looks like something that's outside of that. And when you're unwilling to live this way, you no longer have given anyone proof to believe that you're in Christ. And with that, we want to act differently. We want to say, listen, I, I'm, I'm not sure where you are. You're clearly not living it. So I want to get the gospel to you so that you can. See, that's the idea, is then remove him from the formal membership of the church, deliver him over to Satan. Worst case scenario, he dies, but his spirit is saved. You see, the eternal is always greater than the temporal. Another way to say that, 
the spiritual, the divine, what God has, the kingdom, is always more important than this. This little temporary life that feels like it's everything to us. And so rather, this and the struggle and the, and the punishment for the sake of this. Obviously, I was reading in Matthew 5 this week because what comes to mind is Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge out your eye. Better to enter into eternity with one eye than to have both eyes and enter into destruction. He says the same thing. Your right hand causes you to sin. Cut it off right now. We're not advocating for you to go mutilate your body. The point is true, though. Better to lose a hand than lose eternity. That's what he's saying. Hand him over then. Remove him from the church. Whatever that looks like, do that for his sake. It's to love him so that he will hear the, so that he will know, listen, you're showing no evidence of being a follower of Jesus. So we have been speaking about communion differently for the last six months or so. Trying to be clear of what it looks like. And, and really, it's, it's based on those words that we will see in about four weeks about judgment upon us for doing communion wrong. So if, if you're unfamiliar with that, ignore that until we get there. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll get there, right? But there's some strong warnings on what that looks like to do that wrongly. So we've been speaking differently about that. Saying if you're living in a way that is, like in your, if your life is defined by the sin you're committing that you're unwilling to change of, you're not living in repentance, this isn't for you. We can use baptism because baptism should be the first thing you do when you come to faith is get baptized, right? And so if you haven't done the first thing, why would we assume you should do the second or third thing? Fair? Make sense? It's not meaning that there's a rule that if you're unbaptized, you're not allowed. It's just saying, like, listen, if not, then why? Are you unwilling to do what Jesus has called you to, or is it just a timing thing? If it's just timing, then you're good. But if there's a reason stopping you from being obedient, that's worthy of a conversation. And so just in doing that, over the last two, three, four weeks, I've had four, well, I've had more, more conversations, but I had at least four conversations that are resulting over the next two weeks in baptisms. Because people have never just like crossed that line into being obedient to what Jesus has called us to do. I've had others who say, okay, listen, and then multiple others. Hey, we're not in a place to take communion yet because of this. It's a great conversation. It's a gospel conversation. You see, to ignore all that, not only ignore Scripture and the warnings in Scripture and the commands in Scripture, all those things that we will see eventually, right? It not only ignores that, but it gives false assurance to people that they are in Christ when maybe they're not. Again, I don't know where you go tonight if you die. I can only judge what I see. And for your good and for God's glory and for the unity and purity of the church, this is an important topic. And again, I want you to hear this. This isn't about somebody power tripping. This is the, this is the collective responsibility of the members of the church, not a person, not a small group. If this issue were here today, it's between 50 of us-ish, right? Not me, not me and the elders. It's different. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I'll get to the second part. Arrogance earlier, boasting now. It is believed, and I'm just 
When I say something's true, I believe with all my heart that God's word says it. Disciplining a member, I believe to be true. When I say it is believed, it's a collection of facts that kind of point to something. So it is believed that this person who's been in sin, who's unrepentant, he is in not just sin, we all, we all sin, like all the time, right? This, is, this guy is living in a life-defining sin and unwilling to repent of it. That's different, right? Understood? We agree? And we believe by all the details, or, or biblical scholars, theologians believe with all the details that were given, he's probably a person of some consequence. Maybe of high position, maybe with a lot of money, who knows, right? So that's the belief. If you go back to last week, remember when Paul says, not many of you were born with noble birth or high position or this, right? So you take that and you add it to this conversation, the dealing with this man and saying arrogance and dealing with this man and saying boasting, it is most likely, again, not provable, but it is most likely and relevant for us to understand it like this. If this man was confronted, he may leave and take his prestige or his wallet with him. And that that may be indeed the problem the first, the, that the church in Corinth is struggling with. So I've restarted multiple churches, two churches. And I can remember the moment. In one, so when you're restarting a church, you're taking a church that's going this direction, and it's dying, and it's killing the church, and you're turning 180 degrees to try and turn towards God, right? I mean, that, that's the goal. So that you can be healthy, grow, see people come to faith, etc. Not just your funerals, like see births and baptisms, right? That, that's the goal, okay? Not only have I done to, I've coached a bunch. And I remember this moment where this person said, well, if you don't do this, like, I will not give. I said, keep your money. Not because we were ballers and had the money, because we didn't. But I remember the person, I remember being in my office, I remember the moment. That can change people. I just had lunch with some friends, and they're saying, listen, our church is struggling through doing some of the right things because we've grown so much. We've added staff. We've done this. In order to keep that momentum, we can't lose some of these people. Like, we have to keep this momentum. That's their, that's what drives them. Today's message is one of those messages that's going to free up some seats next to you by next week. Right? If we were to choose people based on their income, their giving, their influence, their power, I mean, like, Joe Contreras is a rock star. I don't know if you know that, but uh, a famous musician. Okay, maybe not, but let's just pretend for a minute. <laughs> what if I just was afraid to confront Joe about something? Because I don't want to lose him because his popularity, his influence, is something I'm arrogant or boastful about or rely on. That's what Paul's saying to the church. Listen to Paul's answer. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? And so leaven is not yeast, it's different, but it's similar to yeast, right? And leaven gets into a lump of dough or a lump of whatever, and it saturates it, right? It, it's, it becomes a part of everything. And so it's this idea that leaven is a metaphor image for sin, that sin gets in and corrupts everything. And so it, it kind of reminds us back to the practices of early Judaism and post-Egyptian uh, post uh, 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 exodus, when they, were, they would keep the Passover 
and they would hide leaven in the house that their little kids would go find the leaven and remove it. And it was an object lesson teaching their kids. Notice, parents discipling children about the removal of sin, right? So it's that language. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin in the church will permeate the whole church. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, notice, again, the tide of Passover, has been sacrificed. So the message reminds us of Jesus. See, we're not pure because we're, because we're members of a church. We're not pure because we showed up on a Sunday. We're not pure because we get the right decision in disciplining a, an unrepentant member or something. Our purity comes from Christ. You see, the gospel is that, that God created humanity pure and sinless. And call them into a life of obedience and worship. But all of humanity has sinned and gone against that. And so you and I are born corrupt. Born under the wrath of God. Born headed to hell, for lack of better terms. Born sinful. But, and, and, and utterly sinful. Like sin permeates all of us. Not like a little sickness. It's like the entire thing. And because of that, we could never work our way back to God. We can never be perfect. We're born imperfect and broken and sinful. And so instead of us going to God, because that's impossible, God comes to us. So Jesus becomes flesh, eternal God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity becomes human and lives the life you and I are called to live, always giving glory to God, always bringing worship, always obedient, always rejecting temptation, always bringing glory to God. And so because of that, he becomes our perfect sacrifice, The Passover lamb was sacrificed so that death in Egypt would pass over that house on the night that they were delivered. Jesus is the reason, if you're in Christ, that eternal death passes over you. And he says, listen, because we are clean, he says, remove the leaven. Leaven, it'll it'll saturate the whole lump, he says, right? He says, you are really unleavened. You have leaven in you, but you're really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sanctified. See, in Christ, we are holy. In Christ, we are blameless. It's like we said last week. He says, now, go and live as saints because Christ had made you holy. Right? You don't live a certain way to become holy. Christ makes you holy. So Paul's saying, so live away. Live in line with Scripture. So the gospel is that Jesus does that for us. If we're truly in Christ, we're transformed. That's why we will see change. Those changes aren't works that earn anything. They're responses to what Jesus has already done. So Jesus gives us, so in Christ, we become something new. Here's three quick verses. John 1, the next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just forgives, takes away. If you're in Christ, your sin is removed. So Paul's point is, So stop living in such a sinful way. Next one is Romans 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, meaning God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? The natural outcome of God being graceful, merciful, kind is you changing. Repentance, it says. God's kindness leads you towards repentance. It doesn't lead you towards, oh, I can sin more because I've been forgiven. Now we got to back up a step and go, hmm, do you really understand what Jesus did for you? Have you really been transformed by that? 
Now again, the answer could be yes, and you're just dropping the ball in that moment. I know I do. But it's a good place for the gospel conversation about our transformation. Last one, Acts 2.38, and we use this all the time. I go to this well all the time. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look, at there's just three things. Repent. We're talking about living lives of repentance. Your life is a life of turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. And as soon as you get that right, you have to do it again over something else. Facts, right? And be baptized. That's like the first step. Repent and be baptized. That's the first step towards Jesus of coming to faith, right? That's what we talk about baptism a lot. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, or you're forgiven, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, right? And then there's the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of you who are in Christ, the promise of baptism that God's Spirit lives within you. How can God live within you and you not be changed? You will learn more. You will be convicted of things you didn't even know were sin. You will be led a direction and you'll be united with others who also have that spirit. That becomes the local church. So that's what the gospel does in and through and for us. Verse 7, we're going to restart there. So cleanse out the old leaven, he says, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Listen to him proclaim that gospel truth of them. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread and the sincerity and truth. Here's a reworded version. Go get rid of the sin, but not in order to become holy, but because you are holy. Right? That's what he said in the first chapter. Live as saints, for you are made holy by Christ. Stop with the leaven. Remove the leaven, because you are really unleavened. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter, Paul says, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Note, in another letter that predates this one, which is 1 Corinthians, he already wrote him about this. When we say this letter exists in a conversation, it's not the first one, he references other stuff, right? Other writings. Verse 9 again. I wrote to you in my letter, and, and the question we have to ask, what does it mean to not associate with? Okay, so I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning, listen, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. I didn't mean just anybody, because you'd have to leave the planet, I meant people, I mean, let's, let's just pause there. He says, I don't mean don't hang out with non-believers. Now again, let me just caution this, especially we have kids, we have people with different struggles. You don't belong in every circumstance, right? If you're trying to get sober, you've got a drinking issue, probably going to a bar is a bad idea. Make sense? But the idea here is no one's prohibiting you from going to places where sinful people are. In fact, you should for the witness of the gospel. Now, the, the, again, the check and balance is, if you're going to be a witness, good idea. If, you, if they're going to influence you, bad idea. In any circumstance, right? And so he says, I'm not saying don't hang out with people like this who are of the world. You'd have to leave the world, right? That, that's not an option because they're everywhere. He wants the church to be on mission. He wants the church to be a light to the world so he can't ignore everybody, and everybody is sinful. So he's qualifying who we're talking about. So just a note for the screen here, real quick. 
Paul's point, and this is a quote, and I'll explain it. Andrew Nicelli, a commentator, writes this. Paul's point is that if a sin so characterizes a professing believer's life that he refuses to repent of that sin and others can label him by that sin, then the church must remove that person from among them, meaning remove them from the membership of the church. Not meaning don't hang out with people, remove them from how you understand them to be inside versus outside. So if that same person does not profess to be a believer, does, is not a member of the local church, we want to approach them with the gospel, not beat them for their sin, but teach them about Jesus. If that person is inside, who's formerly professed faith, who's been baptized, who's been brought into this formal relationship of the local church, and they're not living in revenge, you remove them from that formal relationship and treat them like the first person. We want to teach them about Jesus and about sin and about the penalty Jesus paid for sin. I was asked a question the first time we got together and formalized like the first 50 members. So what if somebody doesn't become a member? Because I already knew, because I, I've lived in this world before, in this, the world of membership in a church before, I'm so in the culture, sometimes I miss the question, right? And I remember the question. I'm like, then they're not a member. I mean, like, I'm, I wasn't sure. And then I remember his wonderful wife then clarified it. Like, he's like well, can they come to church? Of course they can come to church. We want them to come to church. She's like, well, then what's the difference? And I said, oh, that makes sense. You're family, not friends. Like, we're redefining. It's like moving from dating to marriage or from friends. To marriage. We're moving Who's family? So when the family has this definition, and when someone isn't living as family, we still want to be friends. Wow, it just sounds like I broke up in high school. We still want to be friends for the sake of the gospel. We're not ready to be family. You with me? That's the distinction. There's a great question. We're like, okay, what's the difference? Of course we want them in the church. Of course we want them in the gathering. Of course we want them here. We want them to hear about Jesus. We just can't call them family yet because they're not living with that family DNA. They're not living in repentance towards Christ. Verse 11, but now I am writing you to not associate with anyone. Associate doesn't mean hang out with. It's the association, the membership, the belonging piece. It's the formal association is what he's talking about. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting himself. But now I'm writing to not you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. Notice the qualification. Don't include them in the association if they profess to be a brother or sister or in Christ, if he is guilty of this, and then he identifies not just this one life-defining sin, but he lists six. So sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. He says, don't even eat with them, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Here's what he's saying. And I'm going to use that quote from the author. If they're so living in such a way that one particular sin is so visible that people label them by that. So I'll use a different one that's not right here. That guy's a drunk. Oh, that woman is a drunk. There's a different one, right? They're living in such a way that the label applies. They're living in such a way they know is wrong so much so that people have a term for them and they're unwilling to hear. Remember the steps, one-on-one, -on -one, couple people going to you, people you trust, people in the church, 
the body of the church gathering, deliberating, and, and, and pronouncing an outcome, if they're unwilling to hear all that, you can't treat them as a follower of Jesus because there's nothing in there that is showing us that they're following Jesus. See, we use the term Christian, and it's almost like, it, it's almost like the broadest category you can have. But a follower of Jesus is one who follows intentionally Jesus daily. It requires repentance. It requires obedience. It requires being assembled with a local gathering. It requires all this to live it out faithfully. You can't do it apart from it. So he says, so I'm, I'm writing you that you would not associate with. So don't call them a brother. Don't call them a member. Don't formally associate. I'll play this out. I've said no to doing more weddings or as many weddings that I've been asked to do, I've probably said no to as many as I've said yes to around this issue, mostly. Is someone wanting to marry someone who, who by all appearances, is not a believer? Make sense? Don't formally associate. Don't marry them. For sure, don't call them a member of your local church. Then he says, don't even eat with such a one. And this is a reference to communion. He'll develop this in chapter 11. He's not saying don't go out to lunch with. Some people take it that way, and I know you can read it that way. I don't read it that way. You can choose. But he's talking about in the context of the church, the meal that we call communion. See, it was done in the local church around an actual meal. At the end of the meal, they would actually take a bread and a cup and do it there. As churches grew and gatherings changed, it became just about communion. It's that meal that he's saying withhold. And again, if I could do these all in order, we would have done chapter 11 already so that this would make more sense. So just kind of file that back in your brain and we'll get there. Verse 12, again, now Paul's making his point over and over again. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? People that are not members of the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Notice, two uses of judge. Only God can choose, or let me rephrase only God can judge you, heaven and hell. Only God. Only God can judge your heart. I can't see your heart. What do I have to do with judging outside? You're like, I don't, got nothing there. Then over here is like, but you're commanded to, you're, you're called to judge those inside the church. And, and that, a better way we use that term today is discern. Judge right from wrong on the basis of scripture, not alone in the context of a formal community, right? I'll read it again. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So not what you wanted to come to church and hear today. The weight of this conversation probably. But if it's in scripture, of course, it's got to be important. So I want you to sit in this a minute. I want you to hear this last line of chapter five. He pivots to a new topic in the next verse. Purge the evil person from among you. It's how he finishes this issue. Not like, hey, so I hope your day goes well, by the way, right? Purge. I want you to hear that, and I want you to hear the value and the weight that Paul gives this issue. And then I don't want to end there, because the story doesn't end there. This chapter, this letter ends in that moment. I'm going to put something on the screen for you. So in 2 Corinthians, which is likely the fourth letter, if this is the second, this is likely the fourth letter, and Paul visits Corinth in the middle of it, just so you know. 
He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So if anyone's done all this, it's not to me. Paul said, not me, it's not my church. I'm just helping you. He did it to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. I want to pause. For this person who's caused this problem, the judgment by the majority, the majority of the membership of the church. You with me? Right? You're never going to get everybody to agree on everything, right? He says the judgment by the majority is enough. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Two letters later in one visit, this man has repented and turned from the sin that he was living in. And Paul's saying it's enough, but what you did is severe. This shouldn't be like, hey, I didn't like that thing, we're disciplining you in the church. Right? It, it, this was severe. This was a life-defining thing he was unwilling to repent of, and the church was unwilling to act on, we think, because of his position or his influence or his income. But when they actually do it, when they actually live it out, this man changes. He repents of this life-defining sin. When I say life-defining, I mean changing from it is super hard. It's not just like, okay, so, you know, I'm going to stop watching that. It's like defining your life. They're living together. Someone moved. You with me? But in 2 Corinthians, our 2 Corinthians, again, not just the second letter. We're reading the second letter. He's changed, and Paul is advocating for him to be welcomed back and reaffirm your love for him. He's a brother. He's been given the opportunity to change. Now, I don't know the, the distance between the two, but it's years. Now, we'll go back to what Jesus says. Listen, if this is what causes you to sin, get rid of it. It is better for you to enter into eternity with one eye or with one hand, or you pick your which time Jesus says it. See, eternity is always greater than this. And this is true of the local church. The kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom, is greater than the discomfort of this moment or this hardship or this time where you have to walk with someone in this challenging way. You with me? It's when you have that one-on-one -on -one conversation that has not happened yet that needs to happen. God is saying that the outcome, the kingdom, and you're like, well, it doesn't matter that much. It does. Or Jesus wouldn't have said it. And it tears apart churches. Saying the, the to use a modern day incomplete kind of language, but the juice here is worth the squeeze. The outcome is worth the pain it takes to get to the outcome. This man returns, is welcomed, is loved by the church that walked through some very hard seasons of walking with him and his unwillingness to repent of sin. I'm going to put this last note on the screen, faithful and obedient. When the church in Corinth finally obeyed the teachings of Jesus, notice, remember, it's written to the church, not to a leader. When the church finally obeys the teachings of Jesus and the standards Paul taught them, this unrepentant man turned his entire life around and was restored to the fellowship of the local church, securing him 
for eternity. It's brought back in under the banner of that local church. So what do we do with this? Hard conversation, hard topic, and, and it should be rare. Most things should be solved in that one-on-one, two- or three-on-one conversation. That's most things. When it gets here, what do you do? And it's prescribed to us. It's given to us. But if we're honest, most of us just right now would never give that kind of authority to a local church. Like, I don't need that. I'll go down to the church down the street. They got a better whatever anyways, you know, or they do this I like. We never. But again, it's like this. You're going to go through seasons with your marriage. The answer is fix your marriage, not get a girlfriend, right? You can go through seasons with your church. Sometimes it's you, sometimes it's someone else, sometimes whatever. But it's worth it. So we said in the beginning, you're going to have a takeaway. You're going to have a time to talk about what do you take away. What is one thing that stands out to you that you want to apply to yourself this week? And I I wrote down some. For me, last week I shared that it was tiring to get pushback all the time when leaning into a hard topic. My response is, however, the goodness of God's plan as shown here is worth it. Hard things are worth it when the outcome is eternal and so good. That's my takeaway today. That it's worth the hard push for, the, for God to do those kingdom-sized things. So to those of you who are mature believers and, and members of the church, your, your job is to do the hard things for the right reasons while teaching others both how to do hard things and why. Why do we do this? Why would you, hey, your church is telling you this and, and you're, 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 under, you're doing, they've said this and you're listening. Why would you listen? Why would you just go over there? This is why. Because we believe that this is how God purifies and unifies us here on earth until the kingdom. For you new believers, if you're brand new to Jesus or have never really grown in that, the don't judge me culture does damage to people by never telling them the truth about what harms them. It's like loving your children requires discipline. Loving others or the church loving you requires teaching and correction. Well, I say if your little kid is running out into the street, we're going to snatch up your little kid so the car doesn't hit him. Tragic as that may be, pain-inducing as it may be, it beats the alternative. The outcome is better. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I would typically address you and say, towards the gospel, it's, hey, I want to say this. In light of the message, let me say it differently. If you are living in a life defined by unrepentant sin, like today's example is unrepentant sexual sin, you actually might not be a follower of Jesus. Allowing you to think that you can be both a Christian and ignore Christ is false. So let's have a gospel conversation together to find out. I don't know. But rather than the assumption, rather than the overlooking of things, let's have that conversation Let's seek God together in that and see what he says rather than ignoring it. Kids and parents. Parents, do you assume your kids who have not yet made a profession of faith or desired baptism or anything else are already Christians? Do you just assume because they're born in your home that that's true? And do you treat them as a way, in a way that does not require them to some, at some point profess faith and begin to be obedient. Again, the example we use is baptism. Pursuing baptism, when they have a, a, an understanding and, and, and want that and desire that, do, do we have those kind of gospel conversations? Or we just assume 
they're already there. That somehow magically they're not born in sin. And that they don't need to profess their own faith, even if it's at a seven-year-old level. Do we treat them as just we assume, or do we evangelize our children, teach them the gospel, and long and pray for the day where they make that profession of faith and desire baptism and have those conversations? What is a takeaway for you today? You're going to have two, three, four minutes. You guys just turn to somebody near you and have that conversation. What is one thing you heard today that challenges you and you want to do something different in response to in the coming week?